And so this morning, we're going to jump into a small teaching out of Romans 10, and, um, and then I will set you free to do your Mother's Day brunch or whatever you're doing. But I want to start with a conversation, uh, an article I read, actually an interview I read um, by a guy named Mike Cosper. Mike Cosper, I know this is an actual magazine. <laughs> Weird. It's like in person. Do you guys know what magazines are? Yes. Gen Z? All right. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just, things are changing. Actually, I am. I am trying to be one. Mike Cosper interviewed Bono, the lead singer of U2. And he interviewed him just recently because Bono uh, wrote his autobiography, and it's, it's, a, it's written around some of the songs he's written. And if you haven't read it, or if you're not a U2 fan, that's fine, but it's just beautiful. And he's interviewing Bono about his life, and he recalls part of the story right after 2002, the Super Bowl in 2002, U2, um, which I think was the greatest Super Bowl halftime show ever, only because of the moment for our country. It was right after 9-11, and U2 did two songs, and it was just really, it was like a, it was a, it was like a church service. It was beautiful. And Billy Graham wanted to meet the band, the famous evangelist, Right? And so Bono flies into town, and his, uh, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, picks him up at the airport. And they start to have a conversation. And Franklin Graham is asking Billy Graham some questions. And, and uh, for, Sorry, Franklin Graham is asking Bono some questions, and this is Bono recalling the conversation. You, you really love the Lord? Franklin Graham. Yep. Okay, you do. Are, are you saved? Yep. And saving. You can get, just kind of hear Bono's cheeky kind of like. And, he, and Bono says he doesn't laugh at that. And then Franklin Graham says, have you given your life? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Oh, I know Jesus Christ, and I try not to use him as just my personal savior. <laughs> but you know, yes. And then, and then Franklin Graham asks him, why aren't your songs um, Christian songs? Bono says they are. He, and, then, and then Franklin Graham replies, oh, well, some of them are. Bono says, what do you mean? Well, why don't they, why don't they, why don't we know their Christian songs? <laughs> and then Bono replies, they are all coming from a place, Franklin. Look around you. Look at the creation. Look at the trees. Look at the sky. Look at these kinds of verdant hills. They don't have a sign up that says, praise the Lord, or I belong to Jesus. They just give glory to Jesus. Now, I'm not bagging on Franklin Graham. 
Um, I think all of us at different parts of our life and our spiritual journeys have kind of this filter in us that says, okay, is somebody in, somebody out? Does someone side with me and did they do it right? And I think that in this instance, I'm more curious about Bono's Jesus than I am about Franklin Graham's Jesus. In this instant, I'm not trying to bag him. Now, here's the interesting part. The passage we're going to look at today is a passage that throughout church history has been one of those in or out things, right? Like, this is what you're supposed to do, and you do this, and then you're in, and if you haven't done it like this, then, well. And it's kind of a tricky passage, and so we're going to, we're going to look at it, and then we're going to um, see where it hits us. Romans 10, verses 1, it says, Brothers and sisters... My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So basically what Paul's saying is he's like, I want my people to experience like the full rescue and healing that God wants for them. And the problem is, is they're, they're really passionate, but they're passionate about different things. They're misdirected passion, right? And then he goes on, he says, Moses writes this about the righteousness by, that is by the law. These are all very kind of Jewish terms. The person who does these things will live by them. In verse 6, he says, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So, I don't want to get into all the things, but basically there's this idea behind the Jewish mindset that is like, how is God going to rescue us? What do we got to do to get God to rescue us? Do we got to go up? We got to go down. You know, it's like these big terms, right? How do we get God to show up and save us? And in verse 8, it says, But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth, it is in your heart. Okay. So, for those of you in the room that have just joined us, we're in a series on the book of Romans and we're reading Romans backwards. And the reason why we're reading Romans backwards is we're trying to figure out why Paul wrote the letter. We're actually reading someone else's mail. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, who did he write it to? Why did he write it to them? What's it? And then that helps us figure out what it means. Paul is talking to a group of people right now in the letter who are Jewish Christians, meaning they grew up Jewish, obeying Torah, doing all the Sabbath laws and the, the food laws and all the things, and they're kind of, they've kind of been pushed out of their own church. They were expelled out of Rome. They were let back in. There's all this thing going on, and he's talking to just the Jewish people in these house churches in Rome. And the reason why we know that is because he quotes the Old Testament all over the place. And one of the things he quotes right here, the word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, comes from Deuteronomy 30. And Deuteronomy 30 is this spectacular passage 
and it's full of promise and life. And many of the Jews in Paul's day, when he's writing this letter, have studied Deuteronomy 30 carefully, really carefully. And they were hoping to find out, they were hoping to crack the code on what God was going to do for them. After all these years that they had suffered under other nations' rule. But why would they study this passage to find that out? See, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, leading up to 30, that's usually how it goes, it's the end of Moses' life. And he's trying to prepare the Israelites for not only his departure, because he's old, but also because they're about to go into the promised land. And he's trying to prepare them for it. And these chapters tell a story of what's going to happen in you know, Moses' mind and, and, and kind of God's thoughts through Moses of what's going to happen to his people when they get into the promised land. If Israel keeps the commands, God promises flourishing life. But if they don't, he warns them of problems to come. Okay? And then Moses predicts that Israel will do their own thing, go their own way, and that Israel will run into problems. That's, ver- that's chapter 28 and 29. And of all the problems that are going to come Israel's way, the biggest one is a theme throughout Scripture called exile. And exile is what's going to happen if they decide to go their own way. And he's basically, this is Moses saying, if you want this, knock yourself out. (laughs) Go for it. But Deuteronomy 30 is this glimmer of hope. It's this further promise. It's this God keeping his covenant with Israel that when Israel goes into exile, that they might think that everything's lost. And if they think that everything's lost, they just need to know that God promises that if they surrender their lives back to him, even while they're in exile, he will rescue them. And not just rescue them, but he will transform them, he will change their hearts, he will heal them, he will recreate them as a people, and then they will be able to live the full flourishing life that God intended them to live. So what does this look like when it happens? How will Israel, when they are oppressed and they are exiled by foreign nations, how will they know what to do? And this question gnawed away at Jewish thinkers during Paul's day and before Paul's day. Okay, For centuries, the Jewish thinkers were like, how is this going to work? They longed for God to fulfill his promise and and make uh, the Israel people have their own land. And there's just a lot of history there with different foreign nations and things like that. And so much as was written in Jewish texts, they were called the, the Midrash and all these different like interpretations of scripture. And we have two of them that help us kind of figure out like, what were the Jewish people thinking were going to happen? The first one is in the Apocrypha. It's called... Baruch. And in Baruch, the, the author of this is basically saying, for God to show up, the people of Israel need special wisdom, 
right? They need some special wisdom that they don't have right now. And then there's a second text uh, that comes to us um, that's called Some Works of the Law, which I think could have been titled better. Um, I mean, if I was writing it, but... And in this text, the author says, you know what? Israel doesn't need just more special knowledge. Israel needs more special rules. And if Israel was just to like grab onto these rules and obey these rules, that God would show up and rescue them. So, attaining more wisdom and obeying more rules. How fun does that sound, right? Like, (laughs) where do I sign up? Yeah. So Paul is talking to these Jewish Christians who know both of these things. Paul's talking to them and he's like, listen, I know you're living under empire, meaning you are living in a sense like you're still in exile in your own land. You're living under empire here in Rome. And they feel like they're still in exile. And he quotes all this stuff out of the Old Testament. So in order to make this connection go, he uses Isaiah. He uses all these other texts like Joel. And he's basically saying, you think that the... Do you remember last week when I showed you my Boy Scout uniform? For those of you who were here, it was a special day. I don't whip that out for anybody, right? <laughs> and there's some merit badges on it. Like the, the Israelite people had these kind of ideas of, of these special badges. More wisdom, and they did all the laws. And they felt like, oh, and we're going to wear these patches, and we're, gonna, we're just going to prove that God is really on our side. And Paul's saying, those aren't the badges that you need. And this is where he says are the badges that they need. He says this. Paul helps him to see. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, Paul is reminding the Jewish followers of Jesus in the house churches that Israel has been longing for salvation longing for rescue for years and years and years and years, and that God has provided it. So Deuteronomy speaks of this idea of God's word, his speech, basically Genesis language. Do you you remember the Genesis creation story where God spoke and it happened? It's this beautiful picture of God's creative work through through his speech. And he's recreating something, God's saving grace and his recreation coming to be in their mouths and in their hearts is what he's saying. That you and I as image bearers of God, we're small C creators, that we speak things into existence. We can speak life into people and death into people with our words. That's just a, that's a different sermon. For it is with your heart, in verse 10 it says, that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith, that you embody this fidelity to God, and you are saved, or another word is healed. 
As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all those, all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's what scripture calls our heart. It's kind of like the core of us. So this transformed heart is what Paul's talking about. It's visible to the public in this, in this embodied fidelity, meaning just the way you embody who God is, is visible to, to, to you know, as Jesus as Lord. And, and, and this is what happens. The belief that God has raised him from the dead was a sign that someone was now part of a renewed covenant family. That this is like this Deuteronomy 30 thing, right? What he's not saying, and for those of you who have grown up in church circles for years and years, lean in on this one. What he's not saying is just recite these words and you are in. Like it's some sort of a magic potion abracadabra thing. I always get really weirded out by people trying to save people. Like there's some sort of this truncated salvation kind of formula. Confess this plus believe this equals get this. Right? Confess this plus believe this equals get this. Now, um, some of you are like, okay, well, what does it mean then? <laughs> so here's the problem when we read a passage like this. Remember I told you Romans was not written for you. We're reading somebody else's mail. When we read this passage in context, verses from an individualistic Western American context, we discover something way more beautiful. So when you read Jesus, when you read about Jesus and his words and his life, Jesus was all about the here and now. Jesus was not trying to close the deal or make a quick sale. He met people right where they were at. He met their needs. He healed people. He ate with people. He invited people to pattern their life after him, not praying a prayer. He didn't like go up to his disciples and say, hey, uh, invite me into your heart. You know, he didn't do that. He asked them, do you trust me? Who do you say I am? Do you trust me to be with me? Do you trust me to pattern your life after me? And so what I think is so interesting about this passage of scripture is we've kind of truncated it to this kind of, um, is this in your head? Uh, do you have head knowledge of God? If God came down in the person of Jesus and lived this fully human life and suffered and died and rose again, would God really just care about the intellectual content in your brain? I don't think so. Does God love theological correctness more than anything else? I don't think so. Some of the darkest parts of church history where were times when people were forced to, on penalty of death, to either 
recant something or say something, which I always thought was funny because it's just words, right? Like you can't, There's a story of John Calvin and a guy named Michael Servetus. This is the 16th century. John Calvin is trying his best to create a Christian utopia in the city of Geneva, Switzerland. Meaning all the rule of law, it's kind of Sharia law, only Christian. All the rule of law was Christian and the principles for everything were Christian and um, there was this fellow named Michael Servetus that was kind of like uh, re- reacting against some of his thoughts. And so they would trade back and forth letters and pamphlets and things like that. And uh, one day, Michael Servetus shows up in Geneva, shows up at John Calvin's church, and actually gets up in the middle of a sermon, which I wish some of you would do, and, and disagrees with John Calvin. Like, that's wrong, blah, blah. You know, it starts this debate during the sermon. And the leaders of Geneva, called the Geneva Council, arrested him. Arrested him and put him on trial for heresy. And according to John Calvin, his views were heretical. So he was sentenced to death. And he was given the opportunity to recant his views while the fire underneath him was being lit. Burned alive. So Calvin, although he agreed that he should be put to death, thought that they should do it quicker. What a sweetheart, right? (laughs) And the whole time, they used, like, wet wood. And it took six hours for Michael Servetus to die. And all he had to do was say that Jesus was eternally begotten. And he wouldn't do it. Now, in that day and age, you got to understand the culture... People were, they just, everybody wanted certainty so bad. And from town to town, you would go to different places that believed different things. And whole towns were formed after their belief in certain things. The 30 years war was fought because people didn't agree on baptism. I mean, it's just like there's some black eyes when it comes to church history. Now, I'm not trying to bag on John Calvin. Um, I think John Calvin was a product of his time and had some things right and some things wrong. I just don't know about you, but it just doesn't seem very consistent with the life, teaching, and death of Jesus on the cross to burn someone at the stake for any reason. Jesus never had an interaction with someone that said, recite this, And you're going to go to heaven when you die. Jesus was always inviting into his life. And this has become known, this idea of uh, recite this prayer and you go to heaven when you die is, is a ticket to heaven idea of salvation. It is a contractual view of salvation. 
You say some words, then you're in. And how you live really is a distant second or even irrelevant. And by the way, the New Testament is pretty clear on how we live. But knowing him, knowing Jesus, is not just about believing in him and confessing something about him. It becomes the impulse of our lives, and it becomes the impulse of our direction towards Jesus. Perfectly? No. But more and more, it's messy, it's stumbling and bumbling, it's confessing Jesus is Lord in the midst of a day and age for you and I that everything on offer to us is a different Lord than Jesus. It's beginning to live a life that has just different DNA in us. And your life begins to gravitate in a different direction over time. It takes time. Healing takes time. It's not a magic pill. And it's not something that, that happened just in your past, like I was saved. <laughs> it's actually all through our life. There's three tenses of salvation in the New Testament. Past, present, and future. In Ephesians, uh, Paul says that God made us alive. It's a past tense. There's another passage that says that um, us that are being saved. Okay, it's like this ongoing action. There's a present thing happening in us. And in Romans 5, it says, we will be saved. Wait a second. So like, if it's a contract thing, it's like, I bought the car. It doesn't make sense that I'm still buying the car or that I will buy the car. I mean, the, the idea is uh, salvation in the New Testament is much more holistic than, a, than, a, than a, like a mental moment. The word salve means healing. It's something that's happening. And so what Paul is reminding those people, these Jewish people, as we close up, is that they are covenant people. That the core issue in the West is we think of terms of contracts, like the people of Scripture thought in terms of covenant. I'm going to throw a few things on the screen to help us figure this out. Contract... It's about a legal deal between parties. A covenant is about a commitment involving the lived life of both parties. See the difference? Uh, they're not doing a deal between them. They're doing, the, the, there's something happening in them. Or look at it like this. A contract is about acquiring something from someone. Like a quid pro quo, what's in it for me? A, a covenant is about an other-oriented relationship with someone, like me being fully me toward you. That's what a covenant is. A contract is about protecting your self-interest over and against the other party. It's based on fear and protection. A covenant is about protecting the integrity of the relationship that binds together both parties. In scripture, covenants are everything. I mean, there's this way that God does this whole thing. Uh, the people in the ancient Near East were just used to the idea of animal sacrifice. 
And so God, in the midst of what they're understanding, infuses meaning into something that they're culturally used to. And this idea of cutting a covenant is just so grotesque to us, but it's this idea of they would split an animal in half. And both parties is called cutting a covenant, and both parties would walk between the pieces of the animal. You find this in Genesis when God creates a covenant with Abraham. And it's a reminder that to break the covenant actually with God is actually to choose non life. Israel broke the covenant. They could not keep it. We can't keep it either. We need God's help. Jesus walks out our version of the covenant for us to bring us full human healing. And so this is what sets in motion this opportunity for us to live in what Scripture calls right relationship is right relationship with righteousness. I'm sorry, is right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, right relationship with ourselves, which I think is harder than all of them, right relationship with creation. And so I just want to read that passage of Romans again from Eugene Peterson's perspective. He says this, it's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God, Jesus is my master. Embracing body and soul, God's work doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting in him to do it for you. That's salvation. With your whole being, you embrace God setting things right, and then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between me and him. Scripture reassures us no one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. It's exactly the same no matter what a person's religion's background may be. The same God for all of us, acting the same uh, incredibly generous way to help uh, to everyone who calls out for help. Everyone who calls help, God helps. There's this passage in Jeremiah as we close. I think I already told you I was closing, but I'm just going to really close now. And it's really, really powerful the more you understand the background. I'm just going to read six lines to you. Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. This is a picture of God. But the question is, who is Ephraim? Who is this beloved son, Ephraim? Ephraim is Israel in the 7th century BC. And if you know a little bit about Ephraim in the 7th century BC, this is Ephraim, this is Israel at rock bottom. 
This is Israel at its worst spiritual condition and lowest moral ebb in history. This is Israel as idolatrous, adulterous, backslid, covenant-breaking, sinful Israel. Israel at its worst. But Israel is still the child of God. And Jeremiah reveals God's unconditional love for his prodigal, wayward son, Ephraim. Seven centuries before the full revelation that God will come to in Jesus, Jeremiah's poetry, this is beautiful Hebrew poetry, captures the heart of God towards his covenant breakers. And this is God's heart towards me. And this is God's heart towards you. And this is good news because God is so full of love. And at our worst and at our most disastrous, at our furthest removed from God and his will, God's attitude toward us remains unwavering love. And this is an invitation to know that God. And that we, when we know that God, we discover a person and a relationship that's full of mystery and beauty, but it's also a relationship that's a loss of our control. And it's another way of talking about trust. And it's difficult. As transformation feels, the result is something too beautiful for words. And that is resurrection. And that's what healing is. And I'm going to pray. God, this morning we're so grateful to be a community, a we, a community that rallies around each other, a community that prepares our hearts for um, what you would have for us. And God, for those in this room that it's like you just, you know us. Maybe we've lived a lot of our lives with a magic phrase and we feel like we've uh, said the words and prayed the prayer and we've just gone off and lived our own lives how we've wanted to live them. And we've actually missed out on your healing. We've missed out on your transformation that could happen as we yield to you more and more. And then there's some of us in this room that just feel so far from your love. Like there's the hurt we've experienced in this world, the pain, the bitterness, the, the choices we've made. We just feel like you frame. We just feel like you're calling, you just, for the first time in a long time, we just feel like you actually care and love us. That you're actually tenderly waiting for us. And you want to embrace us. And God, we just need that today. And we need to wrestle with that today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.